New Life Lutheran Podcast, where new life in Christ is celebrated and we explore together how to live the Christian life with excellence. Thanks for listening today. You can find our podcast at nllutheranpodcast.com. You can subscribe on Podbeam, Spotify, iTunes, and Google Play Music. If you have any questions for Pastor Eric or would like to suggest topics for our podcast, you can email Pastor Eric at erik.anderson at nllutheran.com. Our scripture this morning comes from the second chapter of the letter to the Galatians. It reads this way. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is justified not by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. We have come to believe in Christ Jesus so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by doing the works of the law, because no one will be justified by the works of the law. But if in our effort to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have been found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. But if I build up again the very things that I once tore down, then I demonstrate that I am a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if justification comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. The word of the Lord. We are continuing uh, a sermon series that we started several weeks ago called Conversations with Jesus. And uh, this sermon series got started because uh, we came across a survey. And the survey asked the question, if you could have dinner with any figure past or present, uh, who would it be? And to our surprise, a majority of Americans said Jesus. It wasn't Abraham Lincoln. It wasn't George Washington. It was Jesus. And that begged the question for us, what would you talk about? If you could sit down and have dinner with Jesus, what would you ask him? And so that spurred this sermon series. So we asked you guys that question. And, uh, and you guys, over the first uh, couple weeks, you guys submitted some questions to us, and then we built uh, the, our sermon series based on the questions that you guys would ask Jesus if you could sit down and have dinner with him. So we've already answered four. If you want to catch up on the last ones, uh, you can listen on our podcast or on our website, and you can get caught up with us. But today we're going to be answering a new question. And I want you to imagine um, uh, this with me. It may not be hard to imagine for some of you. Um, if you're anything like me, you go to work, you work 45, 55 hours a week, and you, you grind at work. You work really, really hard while you're at work, and then you get to the office on Monday morning, and your to-do list is already super long. And on your to-do list are things that you should have done last week, but you just couldn't get around to doing it. You find yourself working six days a week uh, with just one day off, and you work hard all day, every day, uh, and you can't seem to get ahead at work. And then you go home. And uh, you love your family, you love your spouse and your kids, but maybe your kids are misbehaving a little bit, right? Or going through a, a, a growth stage where they're kind of testing their freedom, testing their boundaries. Or maybe they're not performing as well as they should be in school. And so now you feel like a failed parent because you get home from a hard day at work and then you fight with your kids for four hours 
about their homework, about their behavior until they go to bed. And then you get to the end of the day and you're tired. You don't really want to talk to your spouse because it's been such a long day, long, hard day. And every day is like this. It's just hard. You just grind every single day. You can't seem to get ahead. And then on top of this, uh, maybe some new, maybe some sins have crept into your life. Maybe your neighbor has a new car or a new truck or a new boat, which I guess they probably wouldn't be buying a boat in uh, October. And maybe you're thinking, man, it would be really nice to have that truck or it'd be really nice to have that boat. And maybe you start thinking about what it would be like if you had a boat like that. Or maybe your mind starts to wander and think about your neighbor's wife. And all of a sudden you're realizing that there's some sins creeping in to your life that weren't there before and you're really not happy about it. You catch yourself daydreaming about things you shouldn't be, wishing you had things that you don't have. Lying about your work, trying to cover up how hard it is. So one day your, uh, your friend says, hey, why don't you come uh, out with us tonight? We're going to go get some you know, margaritas or beer or whatever at the restaurant downtown. And so you say, okay, great. Yeah, that's good. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go home, uh, hang out with my kids, put them down, then I'm going to go enjoy the afternoon with the evening with my friends. And so it'd be a good, good time to get out. So you do that. You go home. You hang out with your kids. Of course, you fight about X, Y, and Z. You get them to bed. Uh, you tell your spouse goodbye, and you go and you hang out with your friends. And you walk into the restaurant. You walk into the bar, and you see your friends sitting at the table, and you're thinking, great, I'm going to go just kick back for a few hours. I'm just going to hang out with them. And then at the bar, you see somebody else. And you know it's coming. This person waves and ushers you over. And you see it's Jesus. And you think, oh God, literally, right? I don't want to deal with this right now. And then you realize in that moment, I haven't talked to Jesus in a long time. It's been a long time since I've prayed. It's been a long time since I've talked to him. And I'm sure that Jesus knows that I haven't gone to church now for a couple months. Because he always knows when I miss. He always knows when I'm not there. So you're like, okay, we got to get this over with. So you walk over to him and you, you're just going to do some small talk and you're going to get out of there and go hang out with your friends. And so you sit down next to him at the bar and you start chewing the fat a little bit. And finally he asks, so how are you doing? And all that weight begins to weigh on you. He know, you know that he knows that you haven't talked to him much recently. He knows that you know that you're feeling bad about not getting to church as often as you should, not taking your kids to confirmation as much as you should. And then you have this stress at work where you just grind every day. You can't seem to get ahead. Your, your kids are acting up. They're behind in school. Things are so backwards. If things went right, you wouldn't even know what to do. And so you say, Jesus, things aren't good right now, man. I'm working really, really hard. I'm trying really, really hard to do the right thing. And so then you ask him the question, even though I keep sinning, even though I keep messing up and failing, is trying hard, is that enough to get to heaven? And that's the question that we're looking at this morning. Even though we still sin and fall short, is trying hard, is that enough to get to heaven? And the passage that we're looking at is a passage out of the letter to the Corinthians or, or the Galatians. And uh, the Galatians were this people group north of uh, Jerusalem, north of Israel. Um, they were still kind of in the in the Middle East, but kind of that Eastern Europe, Middle East area, uh, that gray zone up there. And uh, 
and they, Paul had planted several churches. The Apostle Paul had planted several churches in Galatia. And we probably know Paul by now. He uh, was a convert to Christianity. He was a Jewish religious leader who persecuted the Christians. He had an experience with the risen Christ who came to him in a vision. And then he was converted on the spot. Uh, Jesus grabbed him by the collar and said, follow me. And so Paul said, okay. And he traveled the known world and he planted churches and uh, he proclaimed the gospel. He was a great evangelist and church planter. And he started these churches in Galatia and he planted the churches. He was there for a little while and then he left. And after he left, there were some Jewish Christians who showed up in Galatia. And that's not odd at that time. In fact, churches at that time were filled with both Jewish Christians and non-Jewish or Gentile Christians. So it wasn't weird that there were Jewish Christians in this church. But these Jewish Christians were telling the non-Jewish Christians something strange. They were saying, in order for you to follow Jesus, in order for you to be a Christian, you first have to be a Jew. In order to follow Jesus, first you have to join the covenant that the Jewish people are under. And so they would tell these Gentiles that they had to do things like be circumcised that they needed to follow the rules of the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible. And there are 613 rules that uh, marked what the Jewish people were and their terms of agreement with God and their covenant with God. And so they would tell these Gentiles, these non-Jews, you have to follow these rules in order to follow Jesus. First you become a Jew and then you become a Christian. And so Paul writes this letter, the letter to the Galatians, in response to this issue. And his answer is an emphatic no. You don't have to be a Jew to follow Jesus. And so we jump in to this passage, and it's right after he spends some time talking about his history, his personal history with Peter, his history as a Jew, and then he makes a transition to more theological conversation. It's a very dense passage of Scripture, so we're going to do our best to kind of unpack it and make it um, understandable. This is one of those instances where sometimes uh, the translators... Uh, who do a very good job. They're going to use some words that we don't use normally in our day-to-day, so we're going to have to unpack some of that as well. But Paul uh, begins this section by saying this, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. So he's addressing all the, the, the Galatian churches, both Jews and Gentiles, and what he's doing is he's saying, uh, he's, he's addressing the Jews in the room. Listen, we're Jews by birth, and we're not Gentile sinners. He's saying, we, the Jews, we are uh, given a heritage of the law. The Old Testament is our heritage. It's who we are. It's what we came under. It's how we knew God before Jesus. We are Jews by birth. We have followed the, the laws of the Torah, the 613 rules that we see in the first five books of the Bible. This is our heritage. And we're not Gentile sinners. And he's kind of being tongue in cheek here because there are Gentiles in the room. And he's essentially saying lawless Gentiles, Gentiles who don't have those 613 rules that we see in the Old Testament. So he's addressing the, uh, the, the Jewish people in the room, the Jewish Christians. We're Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, not lawless Gentiles. And he goes on, he says this, yet we know that a person is, not just, is justified not by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And we have come to believe in Christ Jesus so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by doing the works of the law because no one will be justified by the works of the law. Who used uh, justified this week in a conversation? 
Nobody, right? So this is one of those words. Um, unless you watch the, I think there's a Netflix show called Justified, right? Unless you watch the show, you probably haven't used the term justified. Uh, justified in this context is a legal term, and it means to declare innocent or to declare righteous. So if somebody was uh, um, charging somebody else with some sort of crime, if somebody uh, was uh, accused of breaking the law, if the judge listened to the case or the king listened to the case and found that this person was innocent, they would justify that person. They would declare that person righteous, that they did not in fact break the law, but they, they obeyed the law. So that's what justified means. It means to declare righteous or to declare innocent. And what Paul's saying here, right here at the end, is that no one can be justified by the works of the law. And so here's a dirty little secret about the Old Testament that Paul recognizes and some Jews in his world didn't recognize. And that's when you read through the Old Testament, nobody's the good guy, right? And sometimes our Sunday schools don't help us out with this because we hear uh, stories about these heroes of the faith. Guys, you should, I, I pray that you read through the Old Testament at some point because it's amazing. Everybody fails. Nobody gets it right. Even the heroes of the faith are utter failures. The whole point of the Old Testament is that you get to the end and you think, Lord, have mercy. We need somebody to help us. That's the whole point of the Old Testament. The Old Testament, it's, it's designed to be disturbing. It's designed to keep us on our toes. It's designed to kind of disgust us as we hear about these horrible things that the Israelites were doing. It's designed to do that because we want, the writers want us to get to the end of the Old Testament, to get to the end of that story and think, we need somebody to save us. We need somebody to help us. Nobody in the Old Testament got it right. Nobody fully obeyed God. Nobody did it. And that's what Paul's pointing out here. No one is justified by obeying these rules because no one can do it. There's not enough good works that somebody can do uh, to do it. And in fact, uh, probably, we don't even have all the rules that the Jews had. There are 613 unique rules in the Old Testament that the Jews had to follow. There were probably more. There were actually almost assuredly more rules. We're given a selection to help us understand how broken we are. Right? That's what the Old Testament does for us. It helps us recognize that we can't obey God, that we are not good enough to do it. And so what Paul is saying here is that nobody can be found righteous by obeying the rules. That's not how it works, because at the end of the day, nobody can obey them. And that's the shocking truth. So the short answer to the question, um, is trying hard good enough to get to heaven? No. Because we can't try hard enough. We cannot do enough. Because no one is justified by the works of the law. No one is justified by keeping the rules. That's not how we are declared righteous. So how are we declared righteous? Paul says it earlier, that we might be justified by faith in Christ. So you and I are not good enough. We cannot be good enough. But luckily, on our behalf, God sent Jesus to become flesh, to live as a human, to be the new kind of human that we need to be. And he lived a perfect life, and he died a perfect death. Then he was resurrected, and he did that on account on, for us. He did that on our behalf. 
So now, Jesus has lived the righteous life where we couldn't live a righteous life. Jesus obeyed the laws where we couldn't obey the laws. And so now, when, when we are baptized in Christ, when we have our faith in Christ, when God looks at us, he sees Jesus. He no longer sees our faults. He no longer sees us. It, Jesus did the good works for us. Isn't that good news? So that's Paul's point here. We are justified not by following the rules, but by trusting in Jesus. Now, there are a couple of issues here, right? Issues on the back end that we have to take care of. So if I trust in Jesus, then can I just do whatever I want, right? If I know that Jesus did the good works for me, that Jesus secured my, uh, my pathway to heaven, can I just live however I want and then Jesus is uh, going to cover me for it? And that's, that's the problem, right? So why can't I just go sleep around with whoever I want? Why can't I just go get blackout drunk and hit on people at the bar and pick up, you know, do one night stands there? Why can't I lie, cheat, and steal in my business? Why can't I just do what feels good? And then I know, I trust that Jesus' work is good enough for me, right? That's the question. The problem with that is that that makes God kind of like a spineless parent, right? Who indulges a selfish child, that no matter what that child does, the parent will always say, oh, okay, fine, fine, fine. It also kind of makes Jesus a patsy to sin, doesn't it? Because when it increase, doesn't it increase sin? If we know Jesus died for us, then we can just do whatever we want. Isn't that how that works? Well, Paul addresses that issue. But if in our effort to be justified in Christ, that is have faith, be justified through faith, we ourselves have been found to be sinners, just like I said, we increase our sin because of that. Is Christ then a servant or a patsy of sin? Paul says, certainly not. So here's the issue. Your good works do not get you to heaven, but your sin does in fact separate you from God. It does break the relationship. So your good, wor- your good works, you cannot do enough to get to heaven, but you also are responsible for the bad things that you do. Christ is not a patsy to sin. He's not a spineless parent who just gives us whatever he wants. Our sin still separates us from God. Okay, Pastor Eric, here's the next question. So is the role then of the Christian to simply try not to sin? And if we're trying not to sin, why don't we uh, create new rules and kind of build up rules around the sin so that we don't sin, right? Isn't that the logical explanation? If drunkenness is a sin, then we don't drink, right? We build new rules around the law or around the sin in order to not break it. I came from a tradition that did that. Um, I won't name them right now since I'm not speaking particularly well of them, but I came from a tradition that did that. And I used to joke that the tradition that I came out of, the motto was don't drink, smoke, or chew, or hang with girls that do, right? Up until the 80s and 90s, you weren't allowed to play cards. You weren't allowed to go to movies. You couldn't go to bars. You couldn't do any of those things because... You know, God forbid, you walk into a bar, maybe you'll drink. And if you drink, maybe you'll get drunk, and that's a sin. And so you put, they put rules around the sin in order to protect us from sin. That seems pretty noble, right? Paul addresses this. But if I build up again the very things that I once tore down, that is, if I build up new rules around sin, Now that the law has been torn down, if I build up rules, then I demonstrate that I am a transgressor. So here's here's the truth. Rules 
are meant to be broken, right? I'll give you an example. My son, I have a two-year-old and eight-month-old, and right now my two-year-old, one of his favorite toys is a toolbox, and he has a toy hammer. And if he's walking through the living room and he passes by my eight-month-old, he may not have a malicious thought in his mind. He may just be walking up to the shelf to bang on the shelf, but if he walks past my eight-month-old and I say, Augustine, don't hit Ambrose with the hammer, guess what my two-year-old is going to do? He's going to hit his little brother with the hammer, right? He may not even have it in his mind before the rule was given, but I introduced a new rule and that provided the possibility of breaking that rule. Before there was no sin, when I introduced the rule, now there is a sin there. There's a disobedience. And that's what rules do in the Christian life. When we, with the best intentions, build up rules around sin, we actually increase the possibility of sin. And that's what Paul's saying here. If I build up new rules, where now that I've torn down the 613 Old Testament rules, if I build up new rules, then I actually prove. I prove that I am a sinner. I prove that I am a transgressor. Because no matter what, the new rules, we always tend to break them. And we see this on social media right now, right? We know how horrible plastic is for the environment, and now we're all guilty. We're all culpable with, you know, turtles getting straws in their nose. Because we use one-use one plastic straws. Where there's a new rule, there's more sin. We have the possibility, and then there's more sin is increased. So, loose living is not the proper response, because we're still responsible for our sin. But building new rules, creating new rules for the Christian, that's not a possibility, because that increases our sin. So what do we do, right? We're kind of stuck. I can't work hard enough to get to heaven, but also my sin disqualifies me from it and, it. and it causes separation between me and God. So what do we do? What do we do as Christians? And Paul actually answers that question for us. He continues, For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me, and gave himself for me. The new rule that we have as Christians is not more rules, but it's faith. It's faith. And faith is simply trust. It's trusting and hoping and loving something. So we can have faith in, in anything. We can have faith in our spouse or our job. But the rule for the Christian now, the work of the Christian, is to have faith in Jesus. I mentioned earlier um, during the Confession of Forgiveness about um, AA and some of that work. I call this rock-bottom Christianity. Because now the work of the Christian is not to try to follow the rules. The work of the Christian is to recognize my shortcomings, is to recognize where I get it wrong, and to confess that. And that's what he says when he says, uh, we, I die to the law. The law actually kills me. It convicts me. Rules are good because it, it helps me know that I'm a sinner. Jesus gave lots of rules that we can't follow. And it, they're good for us because it helps us recognize that we cannot do enough. And so then I must die to myself. I must stop putting my faith in my own effort not to sin. I must stop putting faith in my own good works, my own uh, you know, check marks, how many times I've gone to church, how much I've given. I can no longer put faith in myself, but now I have to put faith in Christ. I am a miserable, horrible sinner. I woke up this morning 
and I recognized I'm going to sin today. I'm going to lie about something. I'm going to, I'm going to misspeak about something. I'm going to make myself seem better than I actually am. I am a miserable sinner. And so now the life of the Christian is confessing that. Saying, Lord, I am not good enough. I am not good enough. And then putting our faith in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus gives us promises. In 1 Peter chapter 3, he says, If you are baptized, baptism saves you, and it's the mark of a good conscience towards God. If you are baptized, you are a child of God. And guess what parents like to do? At least what I like to do. My son comes up and asks me for something. I love giving my son whatever he asks for. I love it. I love it when he asks me to share my cereal with him in the morning. I love it when he asks me to share the banana that I'm eating. I love it because my son is asking me something and I can give it to him. God has made so many promises to us. In your baptism, you are a child of God. You are marked by Christ. Jesus makes a promise. He says, this this bread that we're going to have later is in fact my body and my blood is poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. Which means as you drink that wine or that grape juice, your sins are forgiven. That's a promise. We just heard earlier in our confession of forgiveness a scripture that says, if we confess our sins, God will forgive us. That's a promise that God gives to us. We are horrible, miserable sinners, but we can have faith. And we can say, God, I don't have it all together, but you've told me I'm your child, so give it over. Give me the things that you've promised me. You've told me that I have your spirit if I'm baptized, and you told me that the fruit of the spirit is love and joy and peace and patience, so hand it over, God. You promised this to me, so give it to me. It's having faith. It's saying, I'm not good enough, but God has made promises to me. And God loves it when we talk to him this way. Just like a good father loves it when his child asks him for something. God, you made me a promise. You promised me peace. So hand it over. I need it. I am not good enough, but you are good enough. So we confess our sins. We recognize where we've fallen short and we put our faith in God. And then what happens is that as we're walking through our life, we look back and we think, oh my goodness, I'm more patient than I was three years ago. I'm more peaceful than I was three years ago. And it's not because I strived. It's not because I was ashamed. It's not even because I felt guilty, but it's because I put my faith in Jesus and he transformed me. He changed my life. We look back and we say, oh man, I, I communicate with my wife so much better than I did three years ago. We look back and we say, I treat my kids so much better than three years ago. We look back and we say, I love my neighbor so much more than I did three years ago. And it's not because of anything we do. But it's what Christ does to us. Just like Paul says here, it is Christ living in us. So the life we live is not lived by shame. It's not being ashamed. It's not trying to hide our sin. The life we live is not by our own striving. There is nothing we can do. We cannot evangelize enough. We cannot win enough souls. We cannot do enough to get into heaven. But our life is lived by faith. Because Jesus loves us. And he gave himself for us. And so we grab a hold of him. And we say, hand it over. Hand over the things that you said 
you were going to give us. And we look back and everything's different. Everything's changed. Paul goes on and he says this, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if justification comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. If I could do enough good works to be saved, Christ died for nothing. If I could not sin enough, if that was enough to get me into heaven, then Christ died for nothing. But Christ died for us. And so we grab hold. We trust in him. We pray to him. We ask him to give us what he's promised us. And we look back and we say, everything is so different now. That's the freedom of the Christian. You don't have to strive. You don't have to be ashamed. Confess your sins, repent of your sins, and grab hold into the promises that God has given you through his scripture. That's the joy of the Christian. So we're back at the bar. And uh, you ask the question, Jesus, even though I still sin, is trying hard enough, um, good enough to get into heaven. He leans on the bar and he looks at you and he says, no, trying hard is not good enough. But I've already done all the things you need to do to get to heaven. So follow me and I'll take you along with me. The light is heaven.